Thank you for braving the weather and coming out. Would you just put your hands in a receiving position and ask God for something extra special for everyone who made such an effort to be here. Father, I thank you that we serve a God who speaks, who does not leave us in the dark, but has promised to guide us into all truth. I pray we would know your truth this morning and that your truth would make us free from anything that holds us back from your divine purpose and specific plan in each of our lives and particularly what you want to do through our lives to touch the lives of others. And I thank you in advance for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I don't often have titles. You know, there used to be the cassette people, the tape people would come and say, what's your title? Then it was the CD people, now it's the MP3 people. And they say, what's your title? And I would go, uh, March 11th a.m., that's my title. But I did have a title today. I wanted originally to call it My Greatest Joy, but I'm simply calling it The Greatest Joy, and there's a reason for that. But I'll begin by sharing with you, and you know, Steve can tell you what a thrill it is for God to give you an opportunity to preach God's Word. Every time when I'm sitting on a front pew, every single service when I'm going to preach, Steve, I always thank God for the privilege of sharing His Word. Because of the life that's in the Word, when it comes, as Pastor Dan said, upon the hearer, faith cometh by and hearing by the Word of God. And God's given me the privilege of preaching in more than 100 countries of the world. It's been a thrill to travel that, and it's been, it's been a joy, but it's not my greatest joy. And what, if I could communicate any thing from my heart to you today, it'd be this, that my greatest joy can be every one of your greatest joy. What gives me the most joy is available to every single one of you. So I'd love to travel to 100 countries. Let me tell you something, the greatest joy I experience, you can have any given day, every single week, as God uses you for his divine purpose and specific plan. I wish Ruth was here today. She thinks I don't own an Old Testament. But I'd like you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. I will be quoting from the New American Standard Version. But we'll just walk through this text a little bit and it'll be on the screen for you. He says this in verse 4. He who watches the wind will not sow. And he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Now, in order to really understand that, we have to go back to a different time in history of farming when they had no plows, they had no equipment like we have today. It was a very simple task. Over his shoulder, a farmer had a bag of seed, and he would reach in the bag of seed and go into the field, and he would just throw the seed. And Now, why would that man who watches the wind not so. Very simply, because if the wind is blowing, he's afraid that the seed, much of it, is going to be blown away from the soil where it's going to, going to have a harvest. And why would the one who watches the, the clouds not reap? Because even though it's harvest day, if you look at the clouds, it it, it, it may rain today, and if we harvest it today, then it'll rain on the cut grain, and it'll spoil, and some of the harvest will be lost. Let me interpret it this way. 
When it comes to sowing and reaping, there are very few convenient times. There are very few perfect opportunities. There will always be an excuse that it's not a good time. It's not a good place. It's not a good circumstance. That's why the one who watches the wind will not sow and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Let's go on to the next verse. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Just as you do not know the path of the wind. Now, how many of you know that you don't know the path of the wind? You don't know which way the wind's going to go. He says, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman. Now, he's not specifically talking about orthopedics there. What he's saying in the Hebrews, he's saying, you do not know what's going on in a mother's womb. Now, some of you women think you know. You say she's carrying it high, so it's going to be a girl, or carrying it low, it's going to be a boy. You don't know. Not only that, do you, you do not know when that woman is pregnant whether that kid's going to be good-looking or ugly. You don't know if they're going to be musically talented or athletic. How many of you know you don't know what's going on in there? Psalm 139 says that God is at work in that unborn child before it's ever given life, and you do not know what God is doing in there. And so here's what he says. He said, just as you do not know the path of the wind, you don't know how, what's going on in a mother's womb. You do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Now, whenever you see again and again and again the same statement, and notice it says, you do not know, you do not know, you do not know, you do not know. And look at the next verse. It comes up with another you do not know. The next verse says this. So sow your seed in the morning. Do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know. Are you getting the point? We're ignorant, folks. Will Rogers said everybody's ignorant, just on different subjects. Do you remember in Acts when they talked to Peter and John and said they were unlearned and ignorant men? Unlearned is bad. It means you don't know. Ignorant is worse. It means you don't know that you don't know. <laughs> now, I just want to make an interpretation here. The fact that he says, you do not know, you do not know, you do not know, you do not know. He's saying not only are we unlearned, we're ignorant. So because we don't know, and specifically it's that last thing that's so important, because we do not know the activity of God. Sow your seed in the morning. Don't be idle in the evening. You don't know whether morning sowing will succeed, whether evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. In other words, it's probable not every time you sow, you're going to see productivity. But don't be looking at the wind. Don't be looking at the clouds and say, I wonder if this... You know why? You do not know the activity of God. Because you do not know the activity of God in the words of the Nike Corporation. Just do it. 
I remember a number of years ago when I preached here, and I'll allude to this next text. In 1 Corinthians, you know it very well, chapter 3, verse 6. It says, I planted, Apollos watered, and I'm quoting from the New American Standard, but God was causing the growth. And I use that text in reference to missions for faith promises, that by making a faith promise and giving, and when you support lowly, when you support other missionaries, you're engaging in, partnering in their ministry. And you know what? I just believe this. You're going to share in their reward. Hello? Do you know that's what Paul taught the Philippians? He said, Philippians, you know, in the business of giving and receiving, you were the only supporting church I had. I'm paraphrasing. And he said, I seek not the gift, but the credit to your account. In other words, God's keeping the books when you partner with people through giving. And I apply that text on that. I want to apply it now in a very personal way. And you may not remember this, so I'll reiterate it. In Greek, there are two kinds of tense. One is called linear, say linear. The other is called punctiliar, say punctiliar. Here's the difference. Punctiliar happens at one point in time or for a brief period of time. If I would say to you, I ate at Babe's, which is a true statement, thank the Lord. Last evening, you know, Pastor Dan and I broke our diet. If I say I ate at Babe's, what comes to your mind is I ate there one time. But if I would say to you, I have been eating at Babe's, what comes to your mind? Did I eat there once or more than once? More than once. That's the difference between linear and punctiliar. Punctiliar happens at one point in time or for a brief period of time. Linear is an ongoing action. And I quickly want to share with you, and none of the three translations I'm going to allude to are wrong. It's just one translation brings it out a little more fully than the other. If you read it in King James, it says, I planted, Apollos watered, quote the rest for me. God gave the increase. It sounds like a sequence that Paul planted. Now we know, what is the seed, friends, according to Jesus' teaching? It is the word, the gospel, the message. He's saying, I planted the seed in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Then he left and went to Ephesus. Apollos came along as the second pastor. He watered the message that Paul had planted. In the King James, it sounds like then, after Apollos watered, then God gave the increase to what they did. But that's not what he's saying. In the NIV, it says, I think I planted the seed, and it inserts seed even though it's not in the text. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has made it grow. And it sounds like this, that, that I planted, then Apollos watered, and then in an ongoing action, God has made it grow, not just at one point in time. And that's a little better, but the New American Standard says it more fully and more accurately. I planted, Apollos watered, and God was causing the growth. Because you see, God's activity backs up even before Paul planted the seed. How many of you know that before you came to Christ, 
God was already at work in the circumstances of your life preparing the soil of your heart to receive that message. What does Paul say in Philippians? I am confident that he who began a good work in you. Listen, it wasn't Des Evans or Dan Smith or Steve Evans or Randy Hurst or Billy Graham who began the work in you. It was God who began the work in you. It is God who will complete the work until the day of Christ Jesus. And we are given the privilege at points in time to enter into his harvest work. What he does before we share the message is called anyone from a Methodist background. John Wesley talked a lot about it. Prevenient grace. It means that God's grace begins in a life even before they hear the gospel. How many of you believe that? Now what I want to share with you is, you know, there are three inescapable facts. Number one, humanity is lost. The businessman driving down the interstate in the Metroplex talking on his cell phone in his Lexus, if he does not know Jesus, is just as lost as the Indian in Brazil paddling up a canoe in his canoe up the Amazon River. Humanity is lost. Secondly, eternity is certain. Once human life begins, there is no end to human existence. Listen carefully to me. There has been recently a resurrection of an age-old heresy, even by prominent evangelical writers and theologians. It's sometimes called annihilation of the wicked, or there are other names for it, but it simply means this, that the unrighteous at death go out of existence like animals. And only those who are born again in Jesus will live forever. I wish that were true. But Jesus used the exact same adjective to describe the destiny of both the righteous and the unrighteous. And that exact same word is eternal, unending, everlasting. Once human life begins, which I believe takes place at conception, there is no end to human existence. Every person you know, everyone you see on the street, every relative, every loved one, every classmate, every coworker will spend eternity in one of only two possible places. And the third inescapable fact is that Jesus is the only way of salvation. The Apostle Peter said it this way in Acts chapter 4. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And if Jesus isn't the only way, 
everybody should know. The reason I changed the title from My Greatest Joy to The Greatest Joy is it's not just mine. The greatest joy of heaven is the same. Jesus said this in Luke 15, which is a three-story parable. It's not three parables. It is one parable, and it says it in the first verse. Hear this parable. He told them this parable, singular. And he talks about the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Not the prodigal son. The lost son. And he says it about the sheep. Which of you, if you have 99 sheep safely in the fold and one has wandered away as a lost, wouldn't leave the 99 and go and seek and find that lost sheep? And when he finds it, he brings it home, carrying it. And you know there, there's a pattern in all three stories. Lost found joy. She searches the house for the lost coin. And when she finds it, calls her neighbors, rejoice with me, I found it. And in the lost son, that loving father who represents the heavenly father, now you got to remember why this story was told. This story was told in reply to grumbling of religious people who didn't like the fact, I'll paraphrase it, that Jesus was hanging out with sinners. And Jesus told him this story. And by the way, it was pretty obvious, different people in the story represented different people. And if you don't think those Pharisees didn't figure out who the elder brother was by the time of the story was ended. But he was saying, look, you don't understand the father. But he says it right up front in the first story. There's more. I have to tell you, yeah, I, I Facebook Live. I don't do it everywhere. I, I always Facebook Live at Bethesda. I think people ought to get just 10 minutes of worship. I hope you know how blessed you are at the incredible presence of God in your worship in this service. Don't you just love to come to Bethesda? And, and just enter into the worship. And the choir and Brant and Gerard and Chauvin and all the team. They're not conductors. They are worshipers who invite you to worship with them. I got a little theory. I'm going to step off the platform. I don't know. I may have done this before. When I give you an opinion, my wife says, don't preach your opinions. So I'm not on the platform. There are a lot, of, a lot of conferences that a lot of pastors attend that tell them how to get people to show up to church. I got a little theory, Brent. If we focus on what it takes to get God to show up to church, we won't have to worry about the people showing up at church. We are there to invite his presence, and as much as we love it. Friends, this is what Jesus said. As much as we enjoy worshiping together, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner 
who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. That's why I call it the greatest joy. It's not just my greatest joy, friends. Seeing people come to Jesus is not just my greatest joy. It's the Father's greatest joy. It's the angel's greatest joy. Jesus said it. There's more joy in heaven over that. One sinner. Now I'm just going to tell you three stories. Pretty simple. I may have told one of these before. Pastor Dan doesn't think so. I shared with him. He didn't remember any of them. I got on a plane. You know, see, you know when I have time with people on airplanes and they're strapped in next to you. Got on a flight in Greensboro to Chicago. By the way, I am platinum for life on American Airlines because I have three million miles. I don't have to requalify. You know, though I'm platinum for life, never yet have they come to me and said, uh, Mr. Hurst, since you're platinum for life, here are the people who will be sitting in this section. Who would you like to sit next to? How many of you know you don't get to pick who you sit next to? Hello? Well, I'm sitting there, this guy comes in, six foot five, Stetson cowboy hat, ostrich skin cowboy boots, belt buckle, looked like he won a World Wrestling Federation title. <laughs> Mustache. Look, he, it looked like he just stepped off of a Marlboro billboard. And he's sitting next to me. And I have to tell you, when I talk to people, I, first thing I ask is about them. Can I tell you something? If you're going to have a conversation with someone, they got to be interested. May I tell you the one thing people are interested in more than anything else is themselves. Not you. You're boring. They're interesting to them. So, hi. My name is Randy. What's your name? <clears throat> my name's HR. Now, already I know he's from the South. Why do I know he's from the South? Because they don't give them names in the South. They give them letters. H-R-T-L-B-J. J-W. Oh, yeah, give some of them names, but it's never just one. It's always two, like Billy Bob, Wilma Jean, Jimmy Ruth. Okay, so he's sitting next to me. My name's H-R. Now, normally, my first question is, what do you do for a living? Because I get them talking about themselves. Hello? But he just jumped and said, well, Randy, what do you do for a living? And I went, he took my line. <laughs> and I said, I'm a preacher, HR. Now, when you tell someone you're a preacher, right, Steve, you're going to find out if they're willing to talk to you or they're going to look for another seat. <laughs> but he said, listen to this. He said, that's wonderful, Randy. Tell me something since you're a preacher. Do you pray before you get on the airplane and it's not going to crash? <laughs> and I said, you know, HR, I honestly don't, because I don't worry about that. I said, because my life is in my Lord's hands. Maybe I should pray, but I just don't worry about that. And I said, by the way, if I'd show you my calendar, all the stuff he's got lined up for me, you wouldn't worry about this flight. I said, but you know what I very often do pray, HR? He said, what? I said, I pray that God will sit me next to someone that needs to talk to a preacher. Which is true. Hello. And his eyes got a little bigger, but he didn't move. 
Well, I don't have time to tell you the whole story. So I said, you, you know what I do for a living? What do you do for a living, HR? I'm a furniture manufacturer. Now, I got to admit that surprised me. I said, furniture manufacturer? I said, you don't look like a furniture manufacturer. You look like a rodeo cowboy or something. I said, surely you didn't start out life wanting to be a furniture manufacturer. He said, oh, of course not. I said, what did you really want to be? Are you ready? Let's go back to our text. You do not know. <laughs> he said, oh, I just wanted to be an optometrist. <laughs> I mean, if you'd have given me 100 guesses, I wouldn't have guessed this guy, optometrist. And I said, HR, that's fascinating. I said, you look less like an optometrist than you do a furniture manufacturer. I said, let me tell you something. One of the most powerful questions you can have conversing with people is why? I said, why did you want to be an optometrist? He said, I always thought one of the most wonderful things you could do would be to give someone the gift of sight. I said, HR, you just told me a lot about yourself. I said, you want to help people. Yeah, I do. I said, life is more important to you than making money. He said, it is. And I said, HR, before you were born, God had a plan for your life. I don't know if it was optometrist, but I said, I believe this. It's not happening. Whatever God planned for you is not happening. And I said, it can't happen. And I was ready to say, unless you're in right relationship with God. And the Holy Spirit prompted me. May I tell you something, folks? The Holy Spirit lives within us. Whether you can check off on your list of spiritual gifts that you think you have the gift of the word of knowledge, let me tell you, you step out in ministry, God will give anyone a word of knowledge. He will guide you. He will direct you. And I said, HR, excuse me, what happened to you three weeks ago? He said, what do you mean? I said, three weeks ago, something happened that prepared you to sit next to a preacher on an airplane. What was it? He said, I was taking a load of furniture to a furniture show in a semi-truck up to Fargo, North Dakota. I got snowed in in Aberdeen, South Dakota, parked my rig, checked into a motel, I walked down the street in the snow to a bar, walked in the bar. It was a topless bar. And he said, well, I used to work in a topless bar. I used to be a bouncer in a topless bar. But when I walked into it that night, something strange happened. I felt dirty inside. And I turned around and walked back up the street, went in my motel room, sat down on the bed and turned on the TV and who do you think was on TV? I said, Billy Graham? He said, right, Billy Graham. <laughs> Sometimes a word of knowledge is a guess, hello, that God sanctifies, I think. And I said, what did Billy do? Preach the sermon. What about Jesus? 
Then what did he do? Invited people to receive Christ. What did you do? Turn the TV off. I said, why? Why? He said, I really wanted to. But I didn't think I understood enough. So I got down on one knee, and I said, God, if you want my life, you can have it. But you have to send somebody to tell me how to give it to me. I had the privilege of, I'm looking if I got time for two more. I had the privilege of preaching in Amsterdam because I wrote a book on the Holy Spirit called The Helper. It was designed for non-Pentecostals without all the Pentecostal jargon. And they translated it into Dutch, and it was in the bookstores throughout the Netherlands. And so, you know, in the Netherlands, they thought I was important because I was an author that they knew the name, and the Pentecostals did. So when they had the 100th anniversary of Pentecost in the Netherlands, which was the first person recorded that they knew of who got experienced baptism in the Holy Spirit. And 100 years later, they rented the national stadium. It was the Olympic Stadium from the 1920s. And they invited me to speak there and, and Hillsong to sing. And I could show you pictures of that. And they had 25,000 people in the stadium. And I will tell you, it's a joy to preach to 25,000 people. Steve knows. But it's not my greatest joy. And that night, I got back to the hotel. It was late. And I'm diabetic, so I have to have something to eat before I go to sleep so my sugar won't drop too low in the night. Hotel didn't have a restaurant open. I went out walking the streets of Amsterdam. And the only thing I saw was a neon sign, pizza, pizza. And I just followed the light. And, <laughs> and I noticed when I got to the sign, it was on a bar, the Tel Aviv bar, like Tel Aviv, Israel. So I thought, well, at least it's a kosher bar, so... So I went in, and uh, there was a bartender, and one guy sitting at the bar. And I said to the bartender, I said, uh, could I just buy one piece of pizza? I don't need a whole pizza, just one piece. He said, I've already turned the oven off. I said, well, you know, I'm diabetic. I need something to eat. Do you have anything? He said, I've got part of a loaf of bread, and i got some gyro meat left over. I can make you a sandwich with the bread and the gyro meat. I said, that's good. Just make me a sandwich. I sat down in, at the bar next to this guy. Gray ponytail, almost down to his waist, handlebar mustache, great big mug of beer. I said, hi, my name's Randy. What's your name? My name's Peter. I said, I said you don't sound like you're Dutch. Now nah, I'm from Australia. Where are you from in Australia? He told me he was from Melbourne. I said, I've been to Melbourne. Got talking, and to cut it short, I said, Peter... I said, do you attend church anywhere? He said, no. I said, do you live near here? He said, yeah, I just lived a block away. I said, you know, two blocks the other way. There are five streets come together. There is a brick church with a steeple. And I said, I'd like to invite you to come to church tomorrow morning. 
And I said, now it's a mission service. I don't know if you know what that is. But they're going to receive an offering at the end for missions, which is to help missionaries go preach the gospel around the world. But I said, I want you to know you don't have to give anything in the offering. I have the authority to absolve you from giving anything in the offering. And he said, why is that? I said, because I'm the preacher. He said, you're a preacher? I said, yeah, I'm a preacher. He said, what are you doing in a bar? I said, well, I'm diabetic. I had to get a piece of pizza, so, you know. And, and I conversed with him a little more, and he turned away when he found out I was a preacher, and I thought, this is over. This conversation's over. And then he turned back, and even in the dim light of the bar, I could see tears on both of Peter Weber's cheeks. And he said, you know, I used to follow Jesus. But 25 years ago in Australia, someone hurt me in church. And I left, and I married this Dutch girl. I moved to Amsterdam. I started a painting business. I haven't been to church in 25 years. And he said, but this morning, I woke up, and I'll never forget. Before he said that, he said this. He said, you know, once you have followed Jesus, you'll never be happy if you're not following him. And he said, this morning, I woke up. This morning, this morning, I woke up. I had such a desire in my heart for Jesus. I said, Jesus, I miss you. I want to come back to you. And I don't know how. And 10 o'clock at night, a preacher walks into a bar. I said, Peter, will you come to church? He did. He waited till I, I said, please wait till after the service. And after I prayed with people down front, I went and he was seated over on that side. He waited for me. I went back and I had the joy of taking Peter Weber's hand and leading him in a prayer to receive Jesus back as Savior and Lord of his life. We exchanged email addresses. The pastor told me weeks later he was still faithfully attending Thousand Hills Church in Amsterdam. One more. This is on a flight to Dallas. I had gone over with my wife and sons to preach in London, and we extended it a couple of weeks and had some friends join us the second week, two pastor friends and their wives who were twin sisters, good friends of ours, and so they came over. And But the first week in between the Sundays, some of you may know my son Raleigh was an incredible golfer. Won six NCAA Division I tournaments. This is when he was in high school, though. And so I took him, and he had his golf clubs. And when we got on in Springfield, Missouri, now we don't have American, not real American in Springfield. We have American Eagle. I noticed when I, on a night flight to Dallas, if I turn the reading light on, this plane slows down. <laughs> <coughs> That is a joke. Sorry. That's not true. So anyway, American Eagle. Raleigh wants to check his golf clubs. 
I mean, not to check them. He doesn't want to check them. He wants to carry them on board. I said, you can't, honey. Have you seen the size of that plane? They won't let you carry your golf clubs on there. He said, Dad, this is a 1960 Tommy Armour One Wood. If I lose this, I'm toast. He said, this is a, a, a 1964 Ping Answer Putter. Handmade golfers by Karsten Solheim in his garage. And when he won a tournament, it was given to him. I said, son, listen, at that time, I said, I have flown over a million miles on American. They have never lost my luggage. Trust me. Okay, Dad. Well, we arrive in London Gat right next morning. All the luggage comes down. Everything's there except the golf clubs. Raleigh's having a heart attack. And the British are so nice. They act like they care. And, and, the, and the lady said, said, can we rent you golf clubs? I said, you don't understand. He's got extra stiff shaft, different string. Anyway, make a long story short, they tracked him down. They had misroute him somewhere. We had to drive back. We missed our first couple of days of golf. And then I had to drive all the way back to Gatwick and pick up the golf clubs. And we still got three days of golf in. Okay, two weeks later, we're checking in again at Gatwick to fly home. And the man... The station manager was on holiday, so the woman was in charge. Now, let me tell you something. I have flown 7 million miles between the three airlines. Trust me, the women should run the airlines. In fact, I rode with, you ever heard of Robert Crandall? I rode next to him, and I said to him, I said, Do you, you need a woman on every flight crew. I know it's a bad joke. He said, why? I said, well, that way, if the crew gets lost, at least one will ask for directions. Anyway... <laughs> So, Miss Russell, I still remember her name. She said, oh, Mr. Hess, we feel awful about misplacing your son's golf clubs, and we would sort of like to make it up to you. And so we have upgraded you and your wife and your two sons and your two friends and their wives, all eight of you, we have upgraded you first class back to Dallas. <laughs> I like first class. <laughs> I'd never flown first class London to Dallas. Shrimp. It gives you shrimp. I mean, a, a, a cross pen with an eagle on it. You know, all this stuff. And she said, now, we can't do this for all eight of you, but just for the golfers, you and your two sons, we would like to give you complimentary round-trip tickets from the United States back to the UK in the peak season during the months of April and May, which are much better golfing than they are this time of year. And we would like to give you complimentary round-trip. I said, oh, you don't have to. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, we get up on in first class, and I'm, I mean, you know, you can recline all the way back. And I'm sitting next to my pastor friend, Galen, and I said, Galen, isn't God good? I said, make some lose Raleigh's golf clubs so we can ride first class. <laughs> Prosperity will distort your theology, just want you to know. And so, anyway, this flight attendant, effervescent, vivacious flight attendant, we engage in conversation, and I'll cut it really short. And after she gave me the fresh-squeezed orange juice and stepped back a row, I turned to Galen, and I said, Galen, I whispered, this flight attendant just got divorced. He said, how do you know? I said, the Lord just spoke to me. I said, she acts all happy. She is brokenhearted. And God put us here. For her. And after the serving was all done and 
she came back by, we engaged in conversation. I got up out of my seat in first class, there's room for you to back up and let someone else sit there. And she sat in my seat next to Galen. And I don't have time to tell you the whole conversation, but I said, you know, now normally if the Lord speaks to me, I don't tell someone. You know, God told me to tell you. It can freak them out. Most of the time, you just use that knowledge. It guides you. But this time, I really felt I should tell her. I said, you know, I have to tell you, I've never flown first class from London to Dallas. I can't afford this. I'm a preacher. But they lost my son's golf clubs. And so the, the assistant manager upgraded us all. And I thought... God arranged this so we could have a nice ride home. But he didn't do it for us. He did it for you. She said, what do you mean? I said, you know when you gave me the orange juice first time? I said, God spoke to me that you just got divorced this month. It was like a light switch. Her face changed. And she just nodded her head. And I, yes, yeah, shared some gospel with her, I said, you know, I think you know some of what I'm talking about. And she said, yes. She said, when I was a little girl, I went to Sunday school. I know some of what you're saying. And she said, I said, you know, would you get into trouble if Galen and I prayed with you right here, right now, to ask Jesus to forgive your sins, come into your life, and take control of your life? She said, I don't care if I get fired. Because I have something to tell you. I've never flown first class from London to Dallas either. She said, I don't fly international. But she said, I'd taken some time off after the divorce. I was home in the apartment in northeast Dallas. Depressed. With all the bad memories. And a supervisor from DFW called me and said, look, someone called in sick for the London flight. Would you fill in for her? Because she didn't lived too far east of there, and she said, I wanted to get out of there, away from the memories, and I said, yes, I'll do it. And she said, on my way out the door, she said, I did something I haven't done for many years. She said, I stopped with my hand on the door handle, and I said, God, my life is a mess. I don't know what to do. You have to show me on this trip how I can put it back together again. I took one hand. Galen took the other. We led her in a prayer. When we got off the plane in DFW, yeah, she was one at the door saying, thanks for flying, American. Have a nice day. When I came, she threw her arms around me. and Yeah, I got her dress. Sent her some of my sermon tapes. Gave her the names of some AG churches in northeast Dallas. A few years after that, I was packing up to get ready to go out on a weekend like I do to preach, and the phone rang. I said, is this Randy Hurst? Yes. She said, I'm a, my name's Michelle. I'm a flight attendant with American. And she said, I attend First Assembly in Garland, Texas, where Wayne Hanks is pastor. And you've preached here in our church, and I know your name. And she said, the reason I'm calling you, I was on a flight recently, and another flight attendant and I, on our break, we found out we were both believers. 
and gave each other our testimonies. And she told me she accepted Jesus on a flight from London to Dallas and told me her name. And I said, I know that guy. He's preached in our church. And she said, she just wanted me to get a hold of you and let you know she's still serving Jesus and attending for church faithfully. My greatest joy can be your greatest joy. I could tell you a whole bunch of stories, but let me tell you why I told you those three. They have a very unusual thing in common. In each of them, HR, Peter Weber, and Army were lost. Do you know that lost people pray to God? And all three of them prayed, God, I want to know you. God, I want to serve you again. God, help me put my life together. May I tell you, folks, evangelism isn't difficult because before you plant the seed, you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. So sow your seed in the morning. Don't be idle in the evening. You don't know if this sowing will succeed. That sowing will succeed. Or whether both of them will. And I close by telling you five quick things. Just a plan of action that I believe every single person here can do. Number one, listen. May I tell you, half of effective witnessing is listening. And do you know that God will guide their conversation and they'll talk about something that opens a door for you to respond? Number two, talk about Jesus. Now, I thought they were going to give you the book after service, but they've already got it. I will tell you, in that book, there's a chapter. It's just called Who and Why. I think it's the simplest way to talk about Jesus and give the gospel. If you know who Jesus is and why he gave his life, you're ready to lead someone to Jesus. Number three, tell your story. How many of you remember what it was like before you met Jesus and, the different, and know the difference he made in your life? Then you have a story to tell someone of what Jesus has done for you. And number four, this is a big one. I've done this on planes. I've done it in airports. I've done it in businesses in Springfield, Missouri. And my wife does it all over the place. Pray with people. Do you know, if you'll listen at some point, they'll talk about a problem. Now, be discreet. Don't embarrass them in public. Don't go storming heaven at Starbucks. But say, you know, I serve a God who answers prayer. And, you know, your problem, your son's problem or whatever, would it be okay if right quietly here, I would just pray for you. In all of my life, friends, I've only had one person say no. When you pray for someone, they can tell you have a relationship with the God to whom you're speaking. And number five, invite them to Bethesda. <laughs> say, what do I say? Oh, you would love our pastor. You would love our music. Now, if they're non-believers, don't say worship. That'll freak them out. Say music. You would love our music.
and you would love our people. By the way, pray I won't give her name. I invited someone that works at the hotel where I'm staying. She's working this morning. She promised she's coming to the prayer service tonight. So pray for her. May I tell you, folks, it's not difficult. You know why? You do not know. You do not know. You do not know. And you do not know the activity of God. That he is preparing hearts for you. I've never done this before. I'm going to ask Pastor Smith to come and stand here. On the platform. I'm going to stay down here. I'm going to let him represent you as a congregation. A wonderful congregation. And I'm going to pray for Pastor Smith's feet. I'm going to pray that Bethesda will have beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Would you put your hands in a receiving position as I pray for you? And then I'm going to ask Pastor to pray for you. God, I lay my hands at my dear friend Dan's feet as a representation of this wonderful congregation that for so many years has been led by two wonderful pastors. Des Evans endued this congregation with a love for Jesus. And there are so many people. Lord, we have enjoyed your presence today and your power. And there are people we know who are miserable, have no peace, have no joy. I pray, Lord, that this truth will set people free to just do what they can do. Lord, I pray that you lead their feet. Their beautiful feet to reach the lost. Thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name.